Welcome to our Market Narrative series. I'm Julia Newbold, Managing Editor at Connexus Financial, and today we're talking about global growth investing with Raj Shant of Jenison Associates. Jenison Associates is a fundamental equities and fixed income manager with proprietary research 100% owned by PGM. Jenison has just released The Global Spectrum of Growth, a white paper which looks at the growth investment universe. Raj Shant is the Managing Director and Equity Portfolio Specialist based in London for Jenison. He supports Jenison across Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Raj joined Jenison in 2019 after 17 years with Newton Investment Management, where he was a Global Equity Portfolio Manager and Portfolio Specialist. Raj, thanks so much for joining me today in what promises to be a very interesting discussion on global growth investing. Thank you for having me, Julia. So Raj, let's get started. Can you talk about the current environment for global growth investing and some of the trends you were seeing to start the year and what they mean for equities? Sure. Um, I suppose the best way to start is with some context. So growth equities uh, had a, a great few years and culminating with an amazing year of outperformance during the pandemic in 2020. But late in 2021, there was a change which, uh, now with the benefit of hindsight, uh, uh, did lead to something of an annus horribilis for growth equity investing in 2022. So towards the end of 2021, the US Federal Reserve uh, made it very clear that its priority was going to have to shift from supporting growth to uh, fighting inflation. And so that changed the backdrop somewhat uh, going into last year, into 2022. But really what uh, was the surprise in in uh, the last year was the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia. And that caused a big spike up in inflation, whether it was energy prices, food prices, potash and fertilizer prices. And that caused central bankers all around the world to have to chase that higher level of inflation with higher interest rates. And that hit growth equities really very hard. And just to explain why that's the case, you know, if um, you're investing in a value stock, generally the earnings and the cash flows you have today are pretty much all you're going to get. Um, and you're hoping that you're buying it, buying those cash flows cheap. With growth equities, you're really thinking about the earnings and the cash flows many years out. And so uh, you always think about what is the value today of those long-term future earnings. And as interest rates go up, the rate at which you discount those future earnings back into today's cash, into today's share prices, uh, goes up. And the current value goes down. So it's the same principles as for long bonds which also had a very difficult 2022. Um, Essentially, even if the growth trajectory, the fundamental growth trajectory of a company doesn't change, in an environment of higher interest rates, the current uh, value might fall. So that was the basic reason why uh, we, we experienced such a tough year for growth equity investing in 2022. Uh, Now, as we come into the new year, uh, into 2023, the environment does look and feel rather different. Most unusually in my 30-year career as a professional investor, 
markets are disagreeing with the Federal Reserve. They're disagreeing with central bankers. In effect, equity markets and bond markets around the world are saying to central bankers, we don't actually believe you will be able to raise rates as fast as you say you want to, or as high as you say you want to. And equally importantly, we don't think you'll be able to keep them that high for that long. So the market is saying things are slowing down sufficiently that most central banks will probably need to start cutting interest rates later in the year. The central banks are really talking very tough. And it's making for a better environment for growth equities and for long-duration bonds as we come into 2023. Uh, But really, for, for those kind of asset classes, after a big reset in 2022, we don't need for rates to be cut. We just need for expectations for inflation and expectations for interest rates to stop rising. And it really feels like we're at that point now. Well, that's good news. Raj, what's the role of fundamental bottom-up analysis in the evaluation of global growth companies? Uh, that's a good question because, you know, the uh, the common thing that economic students are taught and finance students all around the world is the efficient markets hypothesis, that markets are so efficient that nobody can actually add any value as an active investor, or at least that's one variant of the efficient markets hypothesis. But we believe strongly that uh, actually it's really important to understand growth companies from the bottom up. And let me explain why. So firstly, let's start with the simple concept that there are very few really good growth companies in the world. The vast majority of companies that you look at, that that you come into contact with on a day-to-day basis, when you really look at their their numbers and you uh, say, how fast is it growing? You've got to look at the real growth, uh, growth rate. And that means looking at their growth rate and taking away the rate of inflation and actually also taking away the rate of general economic growth in the countries they operate in. And most companies, when you do that, are left with precisely zero, you know, very little growth and in many cases, negative real growth. And so if you're looking for companies that can outgrow the market, grow faster than uh, GDP growth and inflation added together, then you're coming down to a very small number of companies. And uh, all the studies show that actually a very small number of companies, barely a quarter of all the companies, generate more than 100% of all the growth in all the markets, nearly all of the time. So that's kind of amazing. You're you're really down to a small pool of companies to begin with. And then, uh, as we show in our uh, recent white paper, the, the, the one you mentioned in your intro, uh, the, the global spectrum of growth, with these higher growth companies, the sell side consensus, the market consensus, is incorrect 80% of the time. 80% of the time when you're thinking out over the next uh, three to five years. So having your own analysts doing deep, bottom-up fundamental work looking at nothing but growth equities, year in, year out, so having long tenure, being seasoned in, in that, in that uh, industry, is really valuable. 
And that doesn't mean we get it right all of the time. We just have to get it right more often than that 80% who are wrong uh, all of the time. That's so, an incredible number. Yes. I mean, it really gives a sense of why that efficient markets hypothesis is so flawed. In the new white paper, Jennison uses the terms emerging growers versus stable growth compounders to describe growth companies. What do the terms mean and why are they important for investors to know? Yes. So the paper really started out with some research for ourselves. We want to uh, really study the data rather than just have opinions on the best ways to invest. And what we found was that Thinking about growth companies as one monolithic, homogeneous block isn't really very helpful. And there are companies with very different characteristics in that space. So we looked at the two different ends of the spectrum to to give an idea of of the different characteristics and then the different behaviours of those kinds of companies in different environments. So if you think about the emerging growers... That's often what what people generally think about when they think of growth equities. These are the hyper-growth companies. And, you know, to grow really strongly, you have to be doing something really different. They've often innovated. There's sometimes new science or new technology behind them. They're often disrupting a big incumbent existing uh, industry. They're doing something really different. They're growing very rapidly. And often, as a result of that, they're investing everything they make into the research and development, into the marketing distribution, into their future growth. So many of them, uh, uh, if you look at them at any point in time in their younger years when they're emerging, actually will be making little or no profits. So if you think about the valuation of those companies, optically, if you just look at a single year, It can look extremely high, if not off the charts, infinitely high. Um, But actually, with those companies, the ones that succeed, uh, they really do change the world. They really do change returns for investors. They have a meaningful impact. Uh, And eventually, the life cycle of, of such a company is that in the long run, if they succeed, they become a stable growth compounder later in life. So what is a stable growth compounder? Sorry, Julia, were you, were you about to say something? I was just going to ask you, can you give some examples of it, those kind of companies that do something extraordinary and they start off um, as one and yes, then yeah. become another? That's a very good point. So rather than uh, I'll move on to stable growth compounders in a moment, uh, good examples of emerging growth companies are, for instance, at the moment, there are cloud companies based entirely on the cloud, who were creating entirely new software applications that didn't exist before, or new versions of existing applications. Uh, And they are really creating functionality for individuals or companies that never existed before. So um, let's take simple things and and, famous companies uh, now that that have just gone through that emerging growth phase. So cloud-based software-as-a-service companies, databases, Salesforce uh, management and, and client relationship management, all sorts of functions that used to previously sit very clunky, sit on an individual server in your company's office building. 
now by creating them on the cloud, people access them from their desktop, wherever they happen to be in the world, in the cloud. There's much more interactivity of that data. They can splice and dice the data of that individual or that company it, with far greater ease and with far greater precision and detail than ever before. Now, if you think about a big company, that's incredibly valuable. Uh, data is the new gold of, of the modern uh, digital era. And so the ability to offer all sorts of new functionalities is great. But those companies, the ones that are really launching and at the cutting edge of that, those developments, are not household names. And they probably won't be for many years. So the process of... Uh, making making sure that their distribution reaches all the companies that they should, making sure that their functionality keeps growing, that they keep adding additional functionality for their customers, it all costs money. So many of those companies really trade on multiples of revenues because they have no current profitability to show. So, you know, people look at them and say, oh, they're extraordinarily expensive. And indeed, uh, on a current year view or a one-year view, they, they really are. But if you can take a three- to five-year view, then actually they can start to look really compellingly cheap uh, in terms of valuation. So that is um, some idea of those kind of emerging growers. Uh, in a different sector, different kind of growth would be in the biotech space. Um, you know, imagine a drug company solving for a previously unmet need. Until that drug is launched, it can cost hundreds of millions uh, or indeed these days billions to do all the testing, to do all the refining, to think about how you formulate your product, how you deliver it to the patient, um, and the ongoing testing after the patients have uh, benefited from it. Huge upfront costs with all the benefits in terms of revenues and profits much later down the road. So, those kind of companies would be emerging growers because they're at the earliest stage of growth. And they behave quite differently um, in an environment, let's say, of rising interest rates or rising bond yields, rising inflation. They would tend to, over the, the cycles to be more volatile than the market, but also in the long run to outperform the market if you take a multi-year view. The stable growth compounders, you know, if you take that biotech company, take that software uh, on the cloud company, um, they, they might aspire to grow into a stable growth compounder. That might be what they become when they grow up. But, you know, the, the most um, common examples, the best examples I find people uh, respond to are, think of the big luxury goods companies. Uh, one of the most valuable companies in the world, uh, and certainly the most valuable company in Europe at the moment, is LVMH, which makes a Louis Vuitton luggage, for instance. That's been going for over 100 years in terms of the heritage of those brand names. In any given year, if they wanted to, they could triple, they could quadruple their output. But of course they don't, because scarcity and luxury is part of the brand. It's part of what people are buying. So managing that brand very carefully over time means that they actually have very steady, very visible, very reliable growth. Of course, the growth they show each year is a fraction of the hyper growth that some of those emerging growth companies can show. But it's much more visible, it's much more reliable, 
And of course, equally importantly, from an investment point of view, the valuation architecture of a company like that is much more predictable. The valuation will move in a fairly predictable range. And very importantly, in this context where we're comparing the two types of companies, in an environment of rising inflation, rising interest rates, rising bond yields, the fluctuations or the impact on the valuation of a company like that are much more modest, indeed very modest. So these companies have very different characteristics to each other. They're still growth companies. They grow faster than the economy, faster than the market. But the way that they respond to different market environments is really very different. And really important is that over a cycle, over a three to five year cycle, both categories do tend to outperform the overall market. So Raj, what are some of the secular themes that are driving long-term growth at the moment? Yes, so I think a good starting point is to emphasise, you know, can't emphasise this enough, that the sources of growth are always changing. And really, you know, if you think back to the 60s, uh, IBM and Kodak were the the go-go growth ideas of, of that generation. And, you know, even to the late 90s, um, Nokia and Ericsson were regarded as the ultimate growth stocks. And now, you know, if I give my kids a Nokia phone, it's because I'm punishing them for the week. You know? <laughs> so, so growth is by its very nature because it's got a growth company's got to be doing something different, got to be offering its clients and customers something new. The sources and nature of growth is always changing. So what I'm going to give you now is where we're seeing current growth. And of course, if you talk to me in three years' time, which I hope you will, uh, some of these may, may well change. But you know, areas where we see great growth opportunities at the moment, um, let's start with fintech. So we think that fintech in many parts of the world has a great growth opportunity ahead of it. And... Uh, I think the fundamental reason for that is that if you look at the incumbent companies, uh, the incumbent banks, they, the basic function is to take your deposits, take your money, and to move it from point A to point B as and when you need it. And I don't know so much about the Australian banks, but I suspect they're a lot of like the banks in the UK or the US. They can often be a little bureaucratic, a little slow, and actually quite expensive to do the things that you need them to do. However, modern technology means that you can move money from point A to point B in the blink of an eye. And a fraction of the cost that the old ways and the old systems of doing it used to do. So it, technology has paved the way. But where we see the greatest opportunity of growth for fintech is actually in some of the emerging markets where the banks have invested a lot less in their websites and their mobile apps, where they charge much higher fees to individuals, to, to companies, and often will make it very hard, if not impossible, for small and medium-sized companies to even open an account. So fintech allows a larger number of households to access modern banking. It allows a lot of smaller, dynamic companies to access modern banking and all at lower costs with greater convenience. Just one additional uh, point on that is that 
actually during 2022, uh, in many parts of the world, those companies underperformed those traditional banks. Because those traditional banks, they love, their share prices love an environment where interest rates are rising uh, because they keep the rate they pay depositors the same, but they immediately reprice the rate that borrowers are paying. And, you know, that's a once-in-a-cycle thing that actually only happens when rates are, uh, are beginning to rise. And then traditional banks benefited from that. Their share prices benefited from that. So it's an interesting point in time to think about uh, an area of structural growth like fintech. Um, another area we're thinking about uh, very broadly is electric vehicles. You know, if you think about the growth of electric vehicles, it seems like, well, maybe a lot of the growth is done. But think about the total global fleet of vehicles. And, you know, if you fast forward five to ten years from now, probably 100% of the global fleet will not be operating on the traditional internal combustion engine. Now, we would argue that the majority will convert to electric. Maybe you'll see sources, um, other types of cars as well, hydrogen-driven vehicles for trucks and buses maybe, um, etc. But you actually will get, uh, you're already passing the, the tipping point, critical mass in many countries, for moving to electric vehicles. And you can see in a, a, a country like Norway, which was one of the early movers, we've gone from 0 to 70% penetration uh, in a very short space of time, obviously helped by legislation and a really aggressive program of putting charges, electric charges, all around the country. But that's an interesting idea. And around electric vehicles, and there are many players there, you've got the whole battery technology uh, lots of opportunities around charging stations, lots of opportunities around the software. If you think that an electric car or electric vehicle is really like an iPhone or an iPad on wheels, then if you think about all the new information services or the entertainment services that could start to be provided, as these cars do more of the navigation without the assistance of a human driver, uh, entirely new business models will be opening up in the coming years that, that really uh, haven't existed before. And one area that you know, could be a potential area for disruption is that some of these electric cars are constantly sending information about how the driver drives, the car road conditions, the driving uh, decisions that the driver makes back to the base, which then means that when that driver wants to renew their insurance... That electric car company can tell with great precision how good or bad a risk that driver is. And in fact, you know, their pricing could be so much better for a really good, cautious driver. Uh, they might be much more competitive than anybody else will be. And for, you know, a boy wonder who wants to race around at 90 miles an hour when they think that nobody's looking, they might be so expensive that that, that person never goes to them. But you know, another industry, the entire car insurance industry, ripe for disruption uh, as electric vehicles grow a bigger share of the market. It's incredible the um, implications that these things have. You know, when you when you put it, it's an iPhone on wheels. Wow, that, that's an incredible thought. Well, I think that's the interesting idea with a lot of these big innovations is that, um, and I, I think I might be misquoting Bill uh, Bill Gates when I say this, that the market's often... Um, over-optimistic in the very short term 
and very impatient saying, uh, and you know, when you go back to the beginnings of Tesla, year after year, people say, ah, oh, this company makes no profits. What a terrible idea. Why are people investing in this? But then it often underestimates the scope and the duration uh, of the implications of those innovations. So, you know, we could be operating in an entirely different world of transport, entirely different world of financial services in five to 10 years' time. But in the short term, actually, you know, most of the, the key players in the, uh, exposed to these spaces have had a really bad year in 2022 because you know, the environment wasn't that conducive. So on that, given the market volatility, what does the future look like for growth companies over the short and long term? And what should investors now be keeping in mind? Given the market volatility at the moment, what does the future look like for growth companies over the short and long term? And what should investors be keeping in mind? Yes. So I think the best way to think about the short and long term is um, really to break it into two separate parts. So starting with the long term, and then I will come back to the short term, I promise. Um, The first really important long-term principle to bear in mind is that we do think growth equities are a great place to be. So we've done the long-term analysis, uh, and you can see that in the white paper, the the global spectrum of growth. Um, And what we found time after time over the long term in rolling five-year cycles is that the companies that show earnings growth over the long term actually tend to show the best returns. Now, it doesn't seem that illogical. If you think about it in really basic terms, you buy an asset today and you're thinking about selling it in three to five years' time, for more than, ideally for more than you bought it, it's really, really, really going to help you. Uh, it's going to improve the odds that you're going to be able to do that. If between now and then, three, five, you know, X number of years out, um, the company the, the, in which you've bought that security has got a lot more revenues. It's got a lot more profits. It's got far bigger cash flows. And it, it's perfectly rational for somebody to come along in five years' time and say, oh, yes, I'll pay you a lot more for this asset now than in you paid for it five years ago because it's worth more. So finding good growth companies, being better than that 80% of analysts who get it wrong uh, on a regular basis, is really important in stacking the odds in your favor that you will be able to do that basic task of investment, of buying something today and selling it for far more in the future. So for the long term, you know, we think that finding those great growth companies is the best way to skew the odds in your favor. Now, The short term is always trickier. (laughs) Where are we today? We've just had an environment during 2022 where we've had a massive reset in prices for some of those really strong growth companies, strong long-term growth companies. We're in an environment where, as we were saying at the beginning of this chat, um, the markets broadly globally, and this is not just the equity market, but also the bond market, are really unusually picking a fight with central bankers. They're saying, actually, you've raised rates a lot. Uh, Things have begun to slow down in all sorts of places around the world. We don't even believe that you'll be able to keep raising rates at the rate that you did in 2022. You won't get to the, the peak rates that you're thinking. 
and actually you're going to have to cut before the end of the year. Now, that's already, as we're in the early stages of 2023, that's already created a, a much better environment for growth equities, for, for long bonds. However, we don't need for interest rates to be cut or go back to very low levels for the growth equities to really perform. So let's say uh, rates don't change much more from here, from where we are at the beginning of 2023. Uh, they're not cut later in the year, but inflation expectations stay about where they are, which is for a gentle decline as last year's uh, price surges drop out of the system. We think that's a great environment for growth equities because that's a level playing field, right? So the, the, the broad macro environment doesn't favor one thing or the other. And then you're back to the basic fundamentals. May the best company win. You know, which company can report the best quarterly earnings, the best uh, quarterly progression in sales and revenues, which reports the best improvements in cash flow? In that environment, if you're finding the right growth companies, they will be the winners. So, you know, we think it's an interesting setup after what, you know, after what was probably the worst year for growth equities in two decades. So, an interesting point in time, uh, if you can take that medium and longer term view. An interesting point in time, well, thank you uh, very if you much can take that, that medium and longer term view. And it's very well, thank you very much for that. That's fascinating. And it's very optimistic. So... Thanks again. Thanks for joining me today. You've been listening to Raj Shant from Jenison Associates, part of the PGM Universe on the Market Narratives podcast. 